One of the things that I love so very much about Camp Altamont is the relationship between the counselors and the campers. Uh, these sort of youngish adult figures are there to support these youngish people for a week out in the woods to sort of embody the faith for them. And because we're in the middle of the woods, there are rules we need to abide when we are at camp. And I love how at the very beginning of camp, the kids have arrived, they, they've been served dinner, and we go to this campfire for our first worship service. But before that, they have to learn the rules of camp. And uh, because it's children at camp, you can't just say, here are the rules, you have to act out the rules. And so the counselors will sort of act out why we can't run when we're at camp. And what they'll do is they'll start running around like crazy and tripping and falling all over themselves to show, well, if you run, you can get hurt. So when you're at camp, you don't run. Another rule is you don't throw things. And they all take their crocs off their feet. And now a croc is kind of like a soft piece of you know, plastic, but a well-placed croc can do some damage. And so they take their crocs off and they throw them at each other. And they say, you can't throw things at camp. They go through one by one. There are five rules. And I love this because you can see the kids, they're kind of like on the edge of the grass. You know, there are no seats. They're on the edge of the grass. And they're paying attention to these rules because they can tell they're important. That you should follow the rules at camp because if you don't, not only could you get hurt, other people could get hurt. But the thing I love most about the rules at camp is that this has happened two years in a row where the counselors have shared here the five rules at camp. And before we go to bed that night, I always see at least one person break every single rule. Uh, this year, there was a little bit of a good excuse. A thunderstorm came through right at the end of worship, and so we kind of had reason to run, even though you don't run when you're at camp. Uh, and because it was nice and cool, because the rain, people started to take their shoes off and started dancing in the puddles, you know, while a thunderstorm was going on. Uh, and very quickly, I saw all of the five rules uh, broken. I thought, this is so interesting that even when we say exactly what you should do and why you should do it, it's not enough for us to actually do it. We are told the rules again and again from the time we're children to the time we die. And just because we know the rules, it doesn't mean we follow them. So what should we do? Paul has a word for us. This is Romans 7, 15 through 25a, and Chris is right. Romans is tough. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I think that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Dirty, rotten scoundrel that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
It's time for everyone's favorite summer sermon subject, sin. Isn't that why we all woke up this morning? It's going to be a beautiful afternoon. We're so excited for summer. Maybe we'll go take a dip in the pool and maybe we'll have a picnic. But before that, we need to hear about sin. We need to hear about sin. It's our favorite subject in church. You know, it didn't used to be this way. It used to be that the only thing pastors talked about in church was sin. The only thing. Now, uh, most people who dress like me and stand up in a place like this for 15 minutes on a Sunday morning uh, were more inclined to talk about our inherent goodness, how we're all basically good people deep down. We just need a little encouragement and we'll get better all the time. Sin, therefore, is something we think is old-fashioned, something we've put behind us, we've left it there, we don't need to think about it, we don't need to talk about it. If we mention sin at all, if, we usually talk about the sin of institutions. Why? I think it's easier to blame a lifeless company for all that is wrong in the world. It's easy to talk about all the things that's wrong with Amazon and all the things that are wrong with Walmart and all the things that are wrong with the federal government. I love to talk about all the problems with the federal government. You know why I love to talk about it? Because it makes me feel better about me. I love to point out the problems in other people. I love to point out the speck in someone else's eye. All the while, I forget that there is a log in my own. In 1905, the Daily News, a newspaper in London, published a piece titled, What's Wrong with the World? And they asked for uh, those who received the newspaper to write in answers. They would publish some of these answers. Uh, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, the theologian uh, and intellectual, he wrote back very infamously. He had a two-word answer for the problem. What's wrong with the world? He said, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. He got his answer from Paul. The church destroyer turned evangelist writes to the church in Rome, I am my own worst enemy. I know exactly what I should do, but I don't do it. And to make things even worse, I know exactly what I should avoid, but I do it anyway. And it pains us to admit the truthfulness of his claim precisely because, because it runs counter to the myth of progress that we all subscribe to on a regular basis. We all think we're getting better all the time when in fact the opposite is true. But why does Paul write about this? Why is this the subject he chooses to address? Why this vulnerable confession about him not being able to do what he should do? Why does he spend so much time on this subject? Here in the first few decades after the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the gathering community called church is growing and growing despite all the reasons that it shouldn't. The church draws the ire of Rome. They're kicked out of countless towns. Towns They're persecuted in ways that we can barely imagine. And what for? Acts says they hold all things in common. They share meals together. They pray together. It's just that they believe Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And all around the Mediterranean, places big and small, new churches keep springing up. They meet in various homes. They break bread together. They devote themselves to prayer. And oddly enough, the church is growing most rapidly among the Gentiles, the people outside the confines of Israel. But this raises a few problems. If the Gentiles are also part of God's cosmic plan, what do they need to do to be part of the church? What kind of laws do they need to follow? Because the Jews have to be circumcised. They have to follow dietary restrictions. They have to observe the Sabbath. Do the Gentiles have to do the same? In short, what do Christians have to do in order to be Christians? And the have to in that question is important because for Paul, all the have tos, all the shoulds, all the musts, they don't muster up to a very lively faith. 
Just because you tell someone what they need to do, it's no guarantee they will actually do it. How many times have we been told by the dentist to floss our teeth? How many times have we read a self-help book only to remain largely the same when we close it at the end? What should we do then? What should we do about the law? That's the question that Paul is seeking to answer for the church. The whole letter, it builds and it builds with Paul's thoughts about sin and grace and faith and righteousness and flesh and spirit. Paul has lived in two worlds, both Jew and Gentile. He knows the power of the law, but he also knows the power of the gospel. And having lived under the law, he knows that no one becomes righteous by following it. If it were that easy, there would be no problems in the world. If it were that easy, everything would have been fixed five minutes after Moses came down on Sinai with the Ten Commandments. But the problem isn't with the law, it's with us. We all kind of want to do the right thing, I think. We want to be honest and caring and available to our spouses and our children, our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends. We want to be healthy and free of worry and anxiety. We want to be generous and respected and nice. Except the truth is, we're all mostly greedy and selfish self-centered, bad-tempered. There is conflict within us. We know what we should do, but we do not do it. The law helps us see the conflict. The old prayer book, the one that John Wesley used as a child and adult, has this line from Thomas Cranmer, we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves. Much to the chagrin of every self-help help section in every bookstore, we can't actually really help ourselves. We can adopt new habits. Maybe we can drop some bad ones, but we can't get rid of our sins. Even when we come forward for communion, when we receive the, uh, the bread and the cup, when we put God inside of us for a fleeting moment, all is right in the world, and then we turn to go back to our pew and we see someone in church who drives us crazy and sin is back. Or even if you're really good and you keep it together during church, you get in your car and you go to Kroger and somebody takes their shopping cart and they get right in front of you in line and boom, sin's back. There's something wrong with us. And we can't change it. Bart says that trying to save ourselves is like trying to pull ourselves out of a swamp by our own hair. But what is the point then of church if not to tell us what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. Isn't that the whole point? Doesn't the church exist to make us better all the time? Isn't that what religion's for? Isn't that why you have a pastor to tell you this is where the line is and you need to stay on this side and you can't cross to the other? Isn't that what religion's all about? What well, religion, properly understood, is not what Christianity is. Christianity, if it's anything, is the announcement that God has closed the shop of the religion business forever. Religion is this idea, the, all the things we've ever thought we've had to do to get right with God. And again and again in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God tells us those things don't work. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away our sins. No effort on our own can keep the law of God. But there is good news. In fact, it's the gospel. Everything that religion ever tried and failed to do has been perfectly done once and for all by Jesus in his death and resurrection. Notice how Paul speaks about his own inability to do what he should. It's because he knows the law, and the law has driven him to the truth, to his own self-reflection. O oh, wretched man that I am. It is not easy to admit the condition of our condition. 
It's no, one idea, it's no one's idea of a good time to look in the mirror and really stare at the truth of what we see on the other side. Particularly because our society is sort of made on this idea of self-made people. But Paul says the only thing we're really good at making is a mess. So who will rescue us from our mess? Who will deliver us from the swamp of our sins? Who will save us? Jesus. Paul is begging us to see that the key to our salvation isn't positive thinking or more morality or healthier habits. The key to our salvation is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's God's grace made manifest in the one who frees us from the delusion that we have to save ourselves. We're not in the religion business. We're in the gospel proclaiming business. All of it, the scriptures, the songs, the prayers, the preaching. It's not about bringing all of you the bad news that God will only look kindly on you when you finally get your acts together. Instead, everything we do here is about bringing the great good news that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of our faults and our failures, Jesus rescues us. In the early church, they were fighting. They were fighting about who is in and who is out. Who is right, who is wrong. It's a fool's errand. Every time we hold up a particular sin as being determinative of who is in and who is out of our relationship with God, we stray further and further from the gospel. Or in other words, the law is a poor way of discerning who is in and who is out, of who is a Christian and who isn't. Because if the law is the litmus test for the church, then none of us would make the cut. Church would be empty every single Sunday because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me? Who will deliver me? Who will save me? It's a very strange thing, church camp. Spending outside, time outside in the wild is strange enough on its own going to camp, but then when you introduce Jesus into the equation, it takes on a whole other reality. I mean, it's good and fun to stretch your comfort zone by sleeping in a cabin, zooming on the zip line, and going in a canoe. But it's another thing entirely if you're told, hey, by the way, you know who's with you on the zip line? Jesus. You know who's fishing with you in your canoe? Jesus. You know who's also sleeping with you in your cabin? Jesus. Even stranger is the fact that at church camp, there are plenty for whom church is nothing more than a strange building in their town that they pass all the time, but they've never actually been inside. And so as the church, uh, as the camp chaplain this week at Altamont, I had the great privilege and responsibility of being there as sort of this ambassador of the faith. I got to gather with kids every morning and every evening for worship and for prayer, for the believing and the unbelieving alike. Another thing that Altamont does is we make sure that there is time set apart for every camper to have about an hour with the chaplain, that they can ask any question they've ever wanted to ask from somebody in the faith. Any question they've ever wanted to ask of someone who's supposed to be a professional Christian. And I know you all think that's funny that they saw me as the professional Christian at camp this week. And because it's camp, I got some great questions this week like, what's your favorite color? Do you have a favorite shark? Do you like Taylor Swift's music? And perhaps my all-time favorite question, Hannah Beacon was there when I read this one, when did you decide to be bald? <laughs> when did you decide? 
said it wasn't a choice. <laughs> so there were some good ones, but I also received some very serious questions. Very serious. Like, who actually wrote the Bible? Is there a hell? And if so, how do you know if you're going there? Why can't churches just get along with each other? What happens to people of other faiths when they die? Why won't churches, some churches let women preach? How does God really feel about gay and transgender people? Good questions. Important questions. Difficult questions. And so it was after one such chaplain time session, after having tried my best to faithfully respond to every question as I could, I was walking to our dining hall when one of the older campers came up to me and she said, you know, I used to hate church. I thought, oh, I love this. I used to hate church. I didn't even have to say anything because I knew something was going to come after. You don't just say something like that without giving the rest. I used to hate church. She kept going. She said, you know, I grew up hearing every Sunday about how much God hated me, how mad God was me every single Sunday. But then we moved. My family and I, we moved. We started going to another church. It's a Methodist church like yours. And the preacher there kept saying that God loves sinners. So I used to hate church. But now I kind of love it. I used to hate church. But now I kind of love it. Paul knew that distinction. Of what it means to be told that we're dirty, rotten scoundrels and leaving it at that. Versus being told that we are loved even when we are dirty, rotten scoundrels. We can't deliver ourselves into goodness by being told to be gooder all the time. It just won't happen. The only real way to be rescued is through someone else's love when we don't deserve it. I pray that every one of you here knows what that kind of love is like. That you have someone in your life, a friend, a spouse, a neighbor, a child, I don't care. That you have someone who can fully love you that you don't have to wear a mask around. That you don't have to pretend to be somebody else. That you can be your full, true, authentic self around. That someone loves you as you. That you are free to be yourselves with. Because the proclamation of the gospel is that you are already free in Christ right now. Not after you get it all together. Not after you finally quit sinning. You're free already. It's done. God is so hell-bent on loving you that God dies for you even though you're wretched. Paul writes in another letter, If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything has been made new. Jesus' willingness to be for us, us rule-breaking sinners, breaks everything down and makes all things new. It's love that changes things, not judgment. It's love that changes the world, not judgment. On the final evening of camp, we always gather around a fire under the wonderful beauty of the stars, and we share communion with every single camper at Altamont's. After a week of new things, new friendships, new experiences, new stories, we gather to remember an old story that is ever new, that Jesus, knowing full and well that his disciples, his best friends, will betray, abandon, and deny him, he still offers himself to them. He still rescues them. He still loves them, even though they are wretched. And so on Thursday night, I took the bread and I took the cup. I prayed over it. I gave thanks to God. And every camper came forward. And every one of them, I looked them in the eye. I gave them the body of Christ. And I said, God loves you just as you are. 
the great good news is that's true for all of you. And you don't even have to go to camp to hear it. <laughs> God loves you. You. Exactly as you are. It's the gospel. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.